Captain's log, stardate 18.10.22. I'm at the Division for Planetary Sciences meeting in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's the first day of the meeting. So far, pretty good, except I'm kind of tired. Stayed up last night watching Star Trek The Next Generation because it was my birthday, and I have a tradition of watching Star Trek with my friends on my birthday. And luckily, I've got friends who insist that just because we're on the other side of the country at a science conference, that doesn't mean that we can't keep this tradition going strong. And so we watched All Good Things, the final episode of TNG, uh, it was me, Peter Gao, James T. Keen, and Laura Mayorga. We're all planetary scientists, and we're all friends. So we gathered in one of our hotel rooms and put it on and just had a blast. That episode is just so good. It never gets old, and something new every single time makes me tear up. This time it was when future Picard convinces future Worf to join them on their little escapade into Klingon territory. Picard uses his knowledge of Worf's honor and loyalty to get what he wants out of him, and Worf just has no way of disobeying his former captain because he knows what is right. He knows that he must help a friend who's in need, who's been there for him through thick and thin for decades. And it was just so touching to see that, to think that maybe in the future, I might be in a position like Picard's, where I'm old and cranky and suffering from aromatic syndrome, but my friends will be there for me. And... They'll have my back, even in the most trying of times. Day one of DPS was pretty fantastic. Real briefly, one of the highlights was a talk about the potential biomass in Venus's atmosphere. Now, Venus may not be the first place you think of when it comes to life elsewhere in the solar system. To be honest, for me, it's not the first place either, or even near the first place that I would think of. The reason, of course, being that Venus has a very hot surface. Everybody loves to quote the fact that Venus's surface is hot enough to melt lead. And the reason why Venus is in this state is because it underwent what is called a runaway greenhouse, similar to global warming today. Venus experienced a greenhouse effect, a buildup of CO2 in its atmosphere. Now, Venus entered a runaway greenhouse. Uh, Earth is not anywhere near being a runaway greenhouse, although the effects of climate change could be drastic for our way of life and for millions, if not billions, of people around the globe. But what happened to Venus was even crazier. What happened is that it got so hot that Venus's oceans evaporated into its atmosphere. And water is actually also a really, really strong greenhouse gas. So the more water vapor you put into the atmosphere, in addition to all of that carbon dioxide, the more the planet heated up to the point at which there were no oceans left. And the water couldn't condense because, well, most of it escaped. It got broken up into its constituents hydrogen and oxygen, and those lighter parts just 
went out into space. They were unable to be corralled by the planet's gravity over geologic timescales, and now Venus is very, very desiccated or water poor. That said, Venus does have some water. And while its surface is hot enough to melt lead, in the middle part of Venus's atmosphere, it's not really that hot. Water condenses, and it could be a habitable environment. We know that Earth life is able to survive in what's called our stratosphere, high up in the atmosphere where airplanes fly. Bacteria are found up there all the time. Whether or not those bacteria are really thriving or if they're just surviving in Earth's atmosphere is still an open question. We really don't know too much about the microbiome in the atmosphere. But it's possible that life can exist quite happily lofted in cloud particles. And so people have speculated about Venus life. Now, Venus life cannot be ruled out by any of the data that we currently have about that planet, but there is no real hard evidence to suggest that life is actually there. It's simply a possibility given all that we don't know about literally the closest planet to Earth. So planetary science is a very active field, so is astrobiology. We're trying to gather as much information about the worlds around us as we can and trying to assess the amount of life that there could be. Recently, a paper came out talking about the possibility of Venus life. Actually, the subject has been around for quite a while, and at this DPS, it was the first time that I've ever actually heard a talk about Venus life at a professional scientific conference. It's estimated from the work that was done here that there could be up to 1.2 gigatons of biomass in Venus's atmosphere. And that's a lot. So I'd love to dig into this work a little bit more, read up about it, read the other papers associated with life on Venus, and maybe come back to you with a podcast all about life on Venus. Because honestly, my interest was piqued, but I don't actually know too much about it. So... Let's do a Life on Venus podcast one of these times. At dinner, I got together with a lot of my Caltech friends, whom I dearly miss, and we had some really great conversations all about life and detecting life in the universe, whether or not we will detect life first within our own solar system, say on an icy moon like Europa or an Enceladus, or perhaps in the clouds of Venus, or if we will detect life first on an exoplanet. While we had this fascinating discussion about different ways of detecting life and what actually constitutes a biosignature and our varying levels of belief in these different biosignatures, um, we also brought up a really cool concept for a new Star Trek episode. So Star Trek Discovery or the new Picard series writers, if you're out there and listening to Strange New Worlds, here's a really cool idea. Um, we talked about how all life on Earth has a particular handedness to its biochemical molecules. For instance, we all use right-handed sugars and left-handed amino acids in our biochemistry. What if you had a planet with two separate origins of life? One origin used left-handed biomolecules, while the other used right-handed biomolecules, and you would generate these two parallel trees of life that may give rise to two distinct intelligent civilizations on the planet. 
that could be really cool to have two civilizations on a planet with completely different biochemistries such that they couldn't mate. Maybe they can't use each other's medicines. Maybe they have a hard time understanding each other and each other's science and each other's biology. What would that do to the culture, to the social dynamics on that planet? And what would happen if a Federation crew encountered such a world? Now, this is reminiscent of certain other Star Trek episodes that come to mind. Dear Doctor from Enterprise, for instance, where two hominid species were co-evolving on a planet. They were separate, not in their biochemistries, but simply by where they were in the evolutionary sequence towards intelligence. This also is reminiscent of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield from the original series, where it was basically a social commentary during the civil rights movement of two races that were very clearly different. One had a black side of their face on the right and white side on their face on the left, and the other had the other way around, and they didn't get along. And it was pretty obvious, like, wow, this is talking about racial tensions in the United States at the time, um, because look at you, you're so similar, and the only difference between yourselves is which has what color on what side of your face. Um, but this new idea that we came up with, with a left-handed species and a right-handed species in terms of the the chirality of their biomolecules is a new kind of take on this concept. It's a it's a slightly more scientific take, if you will, and it might really happen. Who knows? So what if the Discovery stumbled upon this planet? What if they found this planet in some kind of turmoil because of their biological differences? And and what if they encountered two people on that planet? who were of the opposite biochemistries, but somehow transcended those chemical differences and were in love. It would be a really interesting science fiction tale, and I'd love to explore that. Star Trek, you better write this. Anyway, that's it for me from day one of the Planetary Science Conference in Knoxville, Tennessee. Computer and personal log. It is obvious the most simple-minded that loci is of an inferior breed. The obvious visual evidence, Commissioner, is that he is of the same breed as yourself. Are you blind, Commander Spock? Well, look at me. Look at me. You're black on one side and white on the other. I am black on the right side. I fail to see the significant difference. Loki is white on the right side. All of his people are white on the right side. Captain's Log, Stardate 18.10.23. Day 2 of the Division for Planetary Sciences Conference in Knoxville, Tennessee. Probably the coolest thing I learned today was about Saturn's moon Titan. Titan's, of course, one of my favorite bodies in the entire solar system. My first project of my PhD at Caltech was on Titan, made possible by the wonderful data gathered by the Cassini Orbiter. 
may it rest in pieces in Saturn's atmosphere. We are planning on going back to Titan, and there's a mission proposal in the works. It's called Dragonfly. It's an octocopter that will hop around Titan's surface, visit myriad landscapes, and sample the chemical constituents of Titan's surface for the very first time. I am super looking forward to Dragonfly. It's just a cool concept all around. Many return to Titans have been proposed, some floating in the lakes and seas of the North Pole, others orbiting the body from space. But this is a real step in the evolution of planetary missions, something that would land, then fly through the atmosphere, and then land again over and over and over again. And it's all thanks to the drone revolution that we have here on Earth. It's a wonderful blend of how technology enables science. There was a talk by Professor Jason Barnes today where he talked about how he sought to calculate what it would look like at sunset and sunrise on Titan. So if you don't know, Titan is a moon of Saturn that is pretty massive for a moon in the outer solar system. In fact, it's the largest moon of Saturn and the second largest moon in the solar system. And Titan has a rather thick atmosphere. The pressure of Titan's atmosphere at its surface is about one and a half times that of Earth. So the pressure is actually even greater on Titan. Titan's atmosphere is also made out of nitrogen, just like Earth's, but it's got plenty of methane as well. And the methane and the nitrogen interact with sunlight to create organic haze particles in the atmosphere, completely shrouding Titan's surface in this yellowish haze. So would you really be able to see sunset on such a hazy planet? And the answer Jason Barnes decided was no. And he did this using a radiative transfer calculation. So he and his colleagues built a computer code that basically tracked how sunlight interacts with the constituents of Titan's atmosphere and gets scattered about. So if you imagine a ray of light coming into an atmosphere, it hits a particle and might get absorbed by that particle or might just get deflected in a different direction. Eventually, you can track where all these rays of light go and you can see at the surface the directions from which the rays of light would hit you. And it turns out that for an extremely hazy or cloudy atmosphere, if there are sufficient number of particles between you and the sun, you end up not being able to see the disk of the sun. And this happens on Earth on a very overcast day. On a very overcast day, even though the sun is somewhere in the sky, it just looks like there's this diffuse light coming from all around you, and you can't really tell where the sun is coming from. On Titan, as long as the sun is near zenith, that means near high noon, right above you, or late in the morning or early afternoon, you can actually make out the disk of the sun. But if the sun is setting, or if it's just risen above the horizon, the angle at which you're seeing the sun takes you through a bit more of that haze than if the sun was right above you. And you can think about this if you imagine Titan and you imagine this thick haze layer around Titan. Think of Titan as a ball and think of the haze layer as maybe, oh, I don't know, a, 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 a kind of 
shell around that ball. And if you imagine yourself looking directly up out of that ball, you're basically taking the shortest path through that atmosphere. But if you're looking at the sun just as it comes up over the horizon or just before it sets, you're actually kind of taking a longer path through that hazy shell. All right, so if the sun is below about 45 degrees from the horizon, then you can't actually make out where it is at all. So you won't be able to appreciate sunset. After the sun dips below about 45 degrees, the sky will just get gradually and gradually dimmer. So that was really cool because that's what Dragonfly is going to see. Well, maybe. That's if Dragonfly had human eyes. But Dragonfly might take a different kind of eye to Titan, an eye that is, first of all, electronic, because it's not a biological dragonfly, it's a drone. So it's going to come with a camera. And that camera may be able to sense in different wavelengths of light than the human eye. And if it looks in the infrared, particularly around one micron wavelength, or one millionth of a meter wavelength, for reference, visible light is about between 0.4 and 0.7 microns, okay? So a little bit longer, a little bit redder than red. And that's why we call it the infrared. So if it looks in that infrared wavelength, about one micron, it turns out that the scattering properties of the haze means that at one micron, twilight will be brightest. Because even though the sun has set, the haze particles are good at scattering one micron wavelength light towards you from a sun that has just dipped right below the horizon. And so he calculated that that is the brightest wavelength for twilight due to the scattering particles of the haze, which is kind of cool. Titan is this amazing world that gives me so much joy to think about because it's so familiar to Earth in many different ways. Its atmosphere is thick. It's got a hydrological cycle, albeit of liquid methane and ethane. So it's got lakes and seas and uh, there's sand dunes and there's things falling out of the sky, precipitates, rain, solid particles. There are rivers running across the landscape. There may even be volcanoes, cryo volcanoes on Titan. It's so much like Earth, and yet it's so different too. It's this other flavor of terrestrial planet where things are made out of ice, and there's organic haze in the atmosphere, and you can't see the sun in visible wavelengths at sunset, but it might be possible at other wavelengths that we aren't tuned to. So Titan excites me. Dragonfly excites me. That was the coolest thing that I learned today, We've still got three more wonderful days of planetary science left at DPS. I'll check in tomorrow. Until then, computer and log. Greetings, Strange New Worlds fans. Mike Wong here, as always, and you're listening to my log entries from the 2018 DPS meeting. That was day one and day two. Day three is coming right up. Day four, you may have already heard I posted that one independently as episode 50, featuring interviews with numerous planetary scientists about the breaking news of the new Star Trek animated comedy series. So go back and check that out if you missed it. Day 5 of this 5-day conference will also be its own episode, 
which I will post next time. Captain's log, stardate 18.10.24, day three of DPS. And the coolest talk today was by Jennifer Eigenbrode, who spoke about organics on Mars. Actually, her entire talk was about life detection on Mars in general, spanning all the way from the 1800s when people thought they saw canals on Mars, all the way up until the present day where we have our very sophisticated multi-billion dollar rovers examining the soil and the atmosphere on Mars. One of the latest results from the Curiosity rover on Mars is the detection of organic compounds. Lots and lots of organics. What is an organic? Well, I've got an expert on chemistry here. What expert? What are you talking about? <laughs> Peter Gao, whom you've heard multiple times before on this podcast. Can you help me define what an organic is, Peter? Captain's Log, supplemental. An organic molecule is made up of carbon atoms usually attached to hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen atoms. And log. Excellent. So Curiosity found these organics in the sediments of Mars. And the main sweeping conclusion of all of this is that the Gale Crater, where Curiosity is currently roving around, once contained a lake about three and a half billion years ago, give or take an eon or two. By the way, that is the same time period that Q transported Jean-Luc Picard to on Earth in the episode All Good Things. Anyway, if Q had taken Picard to Mars instead, he would have found a lake at Gale Crater. And in that lake, he would have found organics, organic molecules, some of the building blocks of life, in quotes, I suppose, swimming around in that lake. Now, whether or not there was life in that lake is up for debate, because what Curiosity has found is basically the remnants of all of these organics concentrated in the sediments that turned into rocks over time. And Curiosity has dug up some of these rocks and revealed these organics, but they come from what is called kerogen, this uh, just mixture of carbon-rich molecules that bears no specificity anymore. It's lost its specificity. It's kind of this amorphous gunk. And so maybe that's a dead life form buried in the rocks, or maybe it's just abiotic organics, organics that are naturally formed without the presence of life in geochemical systems or that came from space. There are many organics in comets and asteroids. So organics does not necessarily mean life. So the interesting thing is we can't actually distinguish the organics that Curiosity has found from those that we would also find on what are called carbonaceous chondrites. Now, that's a whole mouthful of scientific jargon. A carbonaceous chondrite is basically an asteroid that's floating in space that we know to be carbon rich. Okay, and so probably that asteroid's carbon is not intricately interweaved into beautiful life forms like you and me, but just naturally occurring organics created in space. So it's impossible to distinguish the organics that Curiosity has found from those types of organics in space. 
and the kerogen that is generated by biology here on Earth, buried ancient life on Earth. So we don't know the origin of these organics, but they could be the ancient remnants of life. More still to come from Curiosity and its follow-up missions, the European mission ExoMars, and the soon-to-be-launched, aptly named Mars 2020 rover. I'll give you three guesses when that's going to go into space. Anyway, that was the highlight from day three of DPS. Captain Gao, any last words that you would like to say? Looking forward to day four. Till tomorrow. And log.